tihei mauri ora. Ka nui te tangi, ka nui te mihi aroha ki te whānau pani o Barry Barclay nō ngā tiapaha pai taketake kua matiatura ki te pō. Kei te tangi te ngākau mā koutou e pauriana ki tēne a huatanga. Nō rere e tikana kia whai wahi au i konei ki te kawiatunga mihi kia koutou. Nō rere Barry, haere ki te kaihanga, haere ki te kaingo ngā mātua tipuna, haere, 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 e hoki, kāti. Katika Kimuri, Katika Kimua. Etiwi no mai hokumai no ki tia hika. Kotane da tuta, mawako. Maraya rakrakutine. Kia ora tata katoa. It's a term used by one of our more visible iwi, Nati Prau, or Nati 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 Oi Oi Oi. And it's also the name of the first Māori dramatic feature directed by one of the preeminent Māori in the film industry. Last week, Barry Barclay passed away, leaving a legacy of firsts and work referencing Māori that will be used for generations to come. We revisit a recording done with Barry late last year. For some, it was a case of, here we go again, more arrests stemming from the police raids of October last year. We ask why, after all this time, is it happening again to Tuhoi? Or is it a matter of the media and police sensationally generating interest in a dead horse? Moana Jackson talks with us. And more on that, just how accurate is the media reflecting Aotearoa? We head to Waitangi to take a look at one area of the Waitangi Day celebrations that has never been covered by the media. Farihoka Wano joins us with a listing of Māori events happening at the International Festival of the Arts. That kicked off in fine style in Wellington this past Friday. Kutumea tōtahi. Ngāti Upper, Barry Barclay, passed away earlier this week. This dude was happening. Not only did he direct films, he was also writing them as well. Often about subjects that had been popularised or triggered the mainstream radar in the recent 20 or so years. Neglected Miracle, a doco on the ownership of plant genetic resources he completed in 1974, is one example. There's Moko Mokai, that came up in Terua, Indira, a doco about, yep, yeah, that Indira, and of course Feathers of Peace, the film about Moriori. He never shied away from stories challenging a mainstream view of life or Māori. He was passionate about intellectual property, where the rightful ownership of things lay. That resulted in a book published in 2005, Manatuturu, Māori Treasures and Intellectual Property Rights, and giving voice to the voiceless. There was also early television work, the rescreening of the Tangata Whenua series in the late 1990s, done in the early 1970s, that really presented a Māori world I was familiar with and had known as a baby, that now hopefully will see the light of day rather than languish in dusty archives. But I met with Barry last September in the lounge of his sister's Pauline's house, where they spent a morning talking through his career highlights and how he sought the Māori filmmaking industry. We played that back in November and December. Barry was particularly excited about the Film Commission initiative Te Pai Pai Atata, 
aimed at supporting and growing Māori capacity in film. He was delighted about the stories emerging from Māori. He shared one about a take on the Cinderella fairy tale involving the loss of a sneaker rather than a glass slipper. He had a lot planned for the Hokianga community where he lived with his darling Heather. In fact, he had come up with an innovative way of fundraising for film projects that involved asking businesses for $30. So with his death at the age of 63, it leaves a gap, a huge gap, yet Barry himself was encouraged and hopeful at the standard of the emerging talent and, as Mariah mentioned, te paipai atata. Before we hear from Barry himself, I'll paraphrase what Tainui Stevens said earlier this week in reference to the passing of Honetu Whare in January and now Barry Barclay. That generation is leaving us. Well, I grew up in um, Martinborough, which is now a sort of uh, famous wine town um, in the southern Wairapa. My Maori side was from over the way, over into Paruanui and Bulls, and Marimaris, and so on, of um, Natiapa. Um, but our actual upbringing was in the hill country around Martinborough when, when sheep were sheep. And um, no, none, we didn't have the vine. So Martinborough was actually quite a booming little town then. And um, we did have the picture theatre. Now it stands there empty as a town hall, but it was the centre every weekend. Um, what was missing then it was the days before any art we had no uh, colours in the school, we had no crayons, we had nothing like that. Um, and I vividly remember um, uh, our, um, our hairdresser, the man who did our short back and sides, all the boys lined up every Saturday morning before the movies, and you got your trim, you know, from Mr Turner. And Mr Turner was, in fact, uh, quite a skilled watercolourist. And we, I sat there and used to, as a little kid of seven, or something, try and get him talking about these watercolours, because he did all down the southern lakes there, and umbers and ochres and, and deep purples and things. I'd never seen anything like it, because I thought, I, I, we thought pictures must be made by machines, mm. and to actually have a man there who did this, <laughs> anyway, he, we used to have, he'd hold everyone else up while we chatted about his art, as you do if you're an artist, you know, so it, was, it opened a world of visual world to me, and I wanted to be a sign writer, my first thing, just to just to handle the colours and the paints, but um, but it, but it opened one of those little things. Um, I wanted to join TV. I, I wanted to be in film for mysterious reasons I didn't know, but I liked other things too, like sculpture and so on. However, I looked to join um, TV, but they said, "Oh, well, best you start in radio." And by the way, we need somebody in Masterton. So I was bunged in to be a, um, a music programmer, and I didn't, I didn't <laughs> even know about the Beatles. <laughs> Hank Williams, I was doing music programs for Wire Up a National Program. Um, but a little grief in there started a, quite a radical thing in those days. I suppose a, a little um, film company for rural folk. Beautiful locations around Wire Up, a big range of locations. And the rural broadcaster said, we'll start a little film company to do educational films on farmers, for farmers, and little promotional films and so on. And I worked four years on the, on the Bolex. It was hand-wound camera. But we shot a huge range of things. And I was in contact with um, the process of getting a little film off the ground, you know. If, if the New Zealand farmers wanted a film, I remember, well, it was a bit later, but the kind of thing might have been on a, a Hydatta's problem, trying to 
encourage um, farmers to boil meat so that high dentists got exterminated. So a 10-minute film on that. But some of them were quite major. The first uh, film on promoting um, what it would be like when container ships came. We never heard of container ships and mm. the difference it would make. We made a film for our film on our hand-wound camera uh, for IBM to show that computers would come here one day. Wow. And there'd be a little label on the side of the Wattie's can where <laughs> everyone, they would know where every can came from. So it was um, the, the combination of the image and um, being able to tell a story simply, very directly. That was a fantastic family. So you've seen a lot of changes in terms of the way people make films, but also in the gear. I think that a lot of the change in, in what the image looks like has to do with the gear. Right. So when Pacific, I joined Pacific, the little company went um, bung and uh, they ran out of work. You know, they'd exhausted all the contacts and closed up. And um, John O'Shea took me under his wing in Wellington and most of my... A lot of my life was at Pacific Films with John. Did a huge range of films there. Now we came. The, the heroes of the New Zealand film scene at that time was the National Film Unit. It was before TV, or TV was just open, and they were 35 mil films, very very high standard, won a lot of awards. But 35 mil is a heavy thing, so you can't just take it into someone's home and set it up and get a natural kind of effect. Consequently, Maori was sort of picture postcard in the distance. You know, mm -hmm. they would do beautiful um, material of a walker down a, a river. You know, very scenic and misty and 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 so on. But but to actually get people on, on a screen, they didn't get. But neither was it easy. And uh, we just got the famous BL um, came in Aeroflex BL. What's that? It's Aero? a camera which. Um, Sound camera. We had a lightweight sound camera. It's wow, hit. so it's recording sound at the same time. Is that Picture what you sound, mean? yeah. Picture and sound. Well, there was a Ewer recorder, so the combination of a light recorder uh -huh. hooked to a um, lightweight camera, which you could take into a lounge and film people just in their natural environment, um, was revolutionary. And that made something like the Tonga Tepenua series possible. And um, the intimacy that you could get and... Um, and the camera is prominent by modern standards, but not by old old standards. And Tangata Whenua is pioneering, you know, and you see people on there. I remember one um, distinctly, and that shows Eva Rickard's mum. Mm. And you're on the um, you're on a little dinghy, and you're mm. heading out to yeah. to the Urupa. Yeah, that wonderful scene you're alluding to, um, very moving. Herapurongo going over there to. Salute her. I think she buried seven, eight, nine, maybe more children under that tree that she's saluting. So she hadn't been there for many years. But knowing that the old lady wanted to go there, you know, mm. and, and handling that very diplomatically because she might regret it, mm. and or and just and leaving it until during the shoot, later in the shoot, so she'd got to know us a bit better and and could think about that, and then she'd go more insistent that she wanted to show where she lived and so on, it, 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 one learns an evolutionary process, you know, you're not, you're not shooting according to a 60-page proposal that you put in to get your money, which is now the fashion. So we, we by making mistakes and, and, and very good people around us, some of the um, 
the creme de la creme of Maoridom of that time mm. came forward in defiance often of their own community and said, no, this is important for the future. You were also, I mean, you've always been very groundbreaking and pioneering. Have you realised it at the time? Yeah, I think we, I think as filmmakers we should always be um, doing that. That's part of your job, otherwise you're sleeping, you know, you're just kind of you're just walking, uh, walking with your eyes closed. Uh, that's the fun of um, of getting something um, a little bit fresh on the screen. We had a, a early on. I made a film for John on, believe it or not, a thing called farm forestry. How you use trees on a farm, and it, I can drive now through a whole um, three-hour drive through the countryside or through the hills or something, and you can pick from miles away the farmer who knows about trees. All right. So we shot all the actual detail in very, very close, what's called a very, very long lens. So it's sharp detail and blurred background and accents of detail. No wide shots. But I want, we wanted to save the, keep this close, 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 close. And then when you see the finished article on landscape, we came back with a wide shot. So, so it has terrific impact. Suddenly you see exactly if you choose your shot very well. So every film's got its own, you make a little gain on something, you know. And uh, I, I think uh, most good filmmakers do something like that. But then I guess as a filmmaker, you've got your own particular style that you like utilising as well, eh? Um, I've never forgotten... I think one of the, thing, the things that Tangata Fano gave us, I think maintained right to the last film I did, the, the Kuiper Affair, is the richness of the voice. Um, now we can't come to call that um, a manakorero. Hmm. That uh, in an age where everyone says to soundbite, to talking head, you know, when you kind of got crucified for using so-called talking heads in Tangata Penua, but what heads? I mean, <laughs> That's you, right. you, what do you do? What is better <laughs> than listening to some of those old people and some of the young ones too, because we had many of the leaders to come. What what is it better to look at a tree or to look at the person talking? You know, it's ridiculous. Um, and but that that traditions that anti the talking hit prevails. I've got to say, not Maori work. Uh, you got Maori filmmakers treasure the talk, and and in in fact, most films are based around talk. You might if, if it's on. Um, Something about the moon, there's a, a one-hour thing about the moon, which where there aren't any people, but the human voice will take you through that, you know. It is how somebody feels about mm. the object that yeah. gives it richness, unless it's a technical science film or something like that. But even then, you're being led through by another human, so you're sharing a human experience. Uh, so, uh, well, that, that, that thing taught me. And also the business of uh, how, how you... What sort of arrangement is a documentary really with the local community? Yeah. It, it is kind of like a mix of performance and an opportunity for them. It's a, it's a koha. They see their, their yeah. talk as a gift, uh, which you need to look after and don't stand step all over just because you want to make a famous film or something. And um, all those kind of fundamental things. I'd actually encountered just using the Bolex camera, but it became much richer on Tangata Penua. And then other ones, we play on that, you film like Ashes, and each time. The Times Core 
for a different kind of treatment sometimes, eh? That was Nazi upper Barry Barclay. He was buried at Whangehu Pa yesterday. Three more people have been arrested in connection with last year's so-called police terror raids in the Uruweras. Two men from Makatu appeared in the Tauranga District Court charged with unlawfully possessing firearms, including an AK-47, a sawn-off shotgun and a scope. Sixteen others arrested in the police operation in October face firearms offences. The Solicitor General later ruled out laying terrorism charges because of insufficient evidence. Police also arrested a 24-year-old man from Rotoki on nine firearms charges. So as you just heard, this past Tuesday, three individuals were arrested on firearms charges. Not an unusual event. People are arrested regularly. And yet it seems both the police and some media outlets are intent on rehashing and reigniting terms and images in the minds of the public. The raids of October 15th were executed throughout the country, but no one group of people felt the full force of the police action, quite like the town of Ruatoki, or even the aftermath of public perception than the people of Te Uruwera and Tuhoi. It's making some, including our next guest, Moana Jackson, spokesperson for the legal team for some of those arrested, ask questions like, why are the police still arresting people four and a half months on, and why is it making the news? Well, I think as with the arrests in October, there's considerable confusion, and I think some of that is actually deliberate. Um, There were earlier this week a number of arrests made in various places around Tuhoi, which normally would be quite run-of-the-mill standard arrests, if you like, for firearms offences and so on, which happen every day around the country. What the police have done, again, I think quite deliberately, and what the media have by and large picked up unquestioningly, is established a link between these raids and arrests and the so-called anti-terrorist operation of last year. Now, that is, I think, both mischievous and misleading because the Solicitor General and many other legal commentators established clearly that there was no evidence of terrorism. So to continue using the term is unhelpful at at best. And I'm concerned that the the police would continue to, to make that somewhat tenuous link. And concerned but not surprised that some sections of the media would continue to unquestioningly adopt it as well. The term, the Uruweta 17, is again a media catchphrase which, like the term terrorism, has been both unhelpful and inaccurate. Um, One can only presume it refers to those who were arrested on October the 15th, but because a number of those arrested neither lived in the Uruweta nor were from Uruweta, one has to question why they chose that name and did not use, say, the Abel Smith Street 17 or something. And one can only conclude that they did it because it was yet another way of negatively labelling our people. So, Moana, there's a standard legal process that occurs with the charges that have been levied against uh, the people that have been arrested. Could you just explain some of that process again? Well, there there were 
a number of firearms charges, and, and as I've said often, those are run-of-the-mill charges. People get charged with firearms offences every day. Um, but if a parkour man is arrested and remembered on a firearms charge, he's not normally also labelled as a terrorist, um, which made this particular situation different and particularly worrying. And those cases will, will go to court. Um, they will be defended in, in the normal course of proceedings. Um, one of the cases has already been dealt with by the court and the um, person charged was given community service, which was probably a, a reasonable sentence for the firearms charge, but makes a mockery of the fact that that was also originally proclaimed as a terrorist act. Um, and I doubt very much whether any jurisdiction would give a proven terrorist a sentence of community service. So that sentence in itself, in itself I think, tended to show how pathetically inadequate um, the police and government actions were. Now your team has been involved in some action with the United Nations? Yes, well we, we, when the issue broke we, we were concerned first that the rights of those who were arrested were protected in the court system and we did have a number of difficulties with that with people being held without bail for some time, with people being denied right of access to a lawyer and so on. So there were those sort of very procedural legal issues, if you like. We were also concerned with the hurt and abuse of rights done to innocent people, both in Ruatuki and elsewhere. So once we had cleared up the first set of issues and the firearms charges proceeded through the court process, we then worked with a number of other lawyers to begin a process of charges or cases against the police um, for abuse of human rights, for everything from hauling them out of cars at gunpoint and taking their photos in breach of both the law and police procedure um, to unlawful and unwarranted searches and so on. So that became, if you like, the second stream uh, of action that flowed from the operation. And the third one was that because Māori people now have had a number of years' experience in working through the United Nations human rights process, um, we decided to lay a claim initially with the rapporteur on the rights of Indigenous peoples and we chose that partly because of special expertise with Indigenous issues but also of course because he had visited New Zealand and issued a rather damning report about the government's treatment of Māori. While we were doing that um, it came to our notice that two other agencies in the UN human rights system uh, that is the Special Rapporteur on Counterterrorism and the Secretary-General's Special Representative on Human Rights were both concerned about the operation. And together with the Rapporteur on Indigenous Rights, they had actually independently written to the government asking them to explain what had happened. And the government received that communication early in January of this year and as far as we know have yet to respond officially to it and I think the fact that those three top human rights experts in the whole 
United Nations human rights system chose to independently approach the government about their concerns is is a signal event and, and important, particularly the fact that the Secretary-General's own special representative made an approach, and, and that is most unusual, as indeed was the approach from the Rapporteur on Counterterrorism, who normally deals with issues when, say, for example, a government approaches the UN concerned about the operations of a particular group or individual that they think are terrorist. And as far as we know, this is the first time that rapporteur has actually approached a government with some concerns that its action may have actually been terrorist actions. So, so that third stream is still in train. We're waiting for the Crown response to it and the claims that people in Tuhoi have laid have already been um, placed in the UN in Geneva. So it's obvious on a global level there are concerns and yet here again this week we've on a on a micro level we've got those responses that we're hearing in the media that are still making those attachments to um to Dewitta and terrorism. Yes, it it does seem that neither the police nor some sections of the media, not not all of the media, but but the police and some sections of the media have either been unwilling or unable to learn uh, the lessons from last year and the fact that they are still bandying the word terrorism around, I think, is is unfortunate. But if we know our history, we should not be surprised because it's less than 100 years ago that they were calling the followers of Rua Kenana, also in Tuhoi, of course, um, subversives and rebels and using various statutes to affix those labels, and now they're using a different statute and a different label. But I think that the purpose is the same. So what do you think is the purpose of all this regenerated interest in the case? What do you think is coming up next? Well, one can only take a a guess, and um, the guess we made in October of last year was that it, it was politically motivated, that the police would be highly unlikely to take such an action without some sort of political sign-off. And if that was the case, then clearly, as the comedian Mike King said at the time outside the courtroom in Rotorua, that perhaps it's just time to bash Māori over again in in a political sense. Um, We were haters and wreckers three years ago with the um, horseshoe and seabed issue, so let's now just label some terrorists and see if we can garner some political points with that. Um, So I I can only surmise that that's a similar reason. Um, I certainly do not accept that the police have any more evidence of alleged terrorism now than they did um, in October last year. And um, so one can only ask whether there are indeed other, other motives behind it. Moana Jackson or Ngāti Kahununu Ngāti Purau as recorded a few days ago and Te Ahikā will be following that situation. Now, Helen Clark, John Key and Tamiiti all have one thing in common. None of them hail from the far north. Alright, okay, okay, they've got two things. That and the fact 
They were all the headline acts for the media covering events at Waitangi on our National Day. But surely there must be more to the commemorations at Waitangi than just who showed up and who shook hands with who. Tanero went up and found out the difference between what the media presents and what actually happens there on the day. Television, by its very nature, demands pictures, and the more action in the shot, the better. For radio, noise with a strong tone of anger is perfect for the news bulletin. And as for the print media, a colourful descriptive vocabulary is what's required. Now, as far as the media goes, the annual commemorations in Waitangi in early February have been, well, gold, particularly so during the 90s. But lately, it's been a little bit different. Sure, the media still turns up, as do the police, navy and protesters, but it's been four years since Don Brash wore a facial mud pack, albeit involuntary. So what's changed? The latest issue of Mana magazine has an article written by Derek Fox. In it, Fox describes how Waitangi and the way it's observed has changed in the past 30 years. I'm predicting that in a year or two, a lack of blood or mud at Waitangi will cause the New Zealand media to lose interest in the commemorations at Waitangi. Editors will have to find something else to fill the news columns in the electronic bulletins. I've been going to Waitangi on and off for nearly 40 years. This year I began making comparisons between back then and today, and it became obvious to me that the changes have been great. Fox explained in his article what he saw happening on the day. At the bottom marae, Titi, where furious debates have taken place in the past, thousands of people continue to turn up. In the Maiki, Tamaiti and Enet Sykes reported on the terror raids that took place last year. Elsewhere, hapu and whanau groups were raising funds by selling kai and trinkets. The Māori Party and health providers had tents, a motorbike club showed off their Harleys, and at the marae itself, all other activities stopped when a tūpapaku arrived to make a short stop before being buried. Fox reiterated how he saw the media covering the events at Waitangi. The country's three TV networks had a presence at Waitangi, and so did Radio New Zealand and the Iwi Network. Reporters and photographers from the major dailies tripped over each other trying to find the story. For want of something better, the story appeared to be that Helen Clark kept away from Titi and appeared on service, but John Key didn't. Otherwise, it was a quiet day. A lot of the news reports focused on exactly that. John Key and Helen Clark. I guess, given it's an election year, that's not surprising. What I did find surprising is that for the first time in 12 years, the man who has organised the kids' activities at Waitangi was finally interviewed by a member of the media. Rangi Selwyn is part of the group who organises the Touch and Children's Rides. Rangi describes how for the past 12 years, a small rōpū of volunteers have created a place where they can enjoy a whole heap of activities something none of the media have ever included in their respective news items. And yet, it's what makes the Waitangi Day celebrations so special to the younger attendees. Basically, it's, it's, a, it's a way, with the sports, it's a way of getting our youth and our people out here just to get them to run around and, and have a good time. And with the rides, all the rides are free. We get sponsorship every year from um, Mapo, uh, the Commemoration Committee, and TPK. And they put in and pay for all the rides, and all the rides here are free every year. It's been going for this our 12th year now. I noticed there's a uh, game of touch, um, or a couple of games of touch happening at the moment. Um, so, who are the teams and where are they from? 
Um, most of the teams are from north. Uh, we do get um, the odd one from Navy every year. This would be actually the first year the Navy haven't put a team in. Is that because they keep beating everyone? Uh, no, I think it's because they've got to do some work this year, I suppose, because yeah, it's unusual not to have them in here. And um, quite a few of the teams local... Local uh, marae, hapu teams, or yeah, basically a lot of them are whanau teams. They just uh, get the family together and friends, and they just uh, come out and uh, we get teams from Whangarei, we've got a couple from up Kaikaua way, a couple from uh, Kaikohe. Yeah. And the rides, you can see quite a few kids, quite a few big kids on them as well. Well, you know yourself when you when you come to things where they have rides and you've got to pay say five dollars for a child just for a ride, and um, you come to the Waitangi, you bring the whole lot of your family, and you, if you've got six, four or five kids, you can't afford to pay five dollars. So we went out and, and saw these, um, these these people and asked for sponsorship to pay for the rides, and hence everything's free. And um, the parents must really appreciate that. Well, I hope so, because we've been doing it for 12 years, so, you know, I really do hope to do it, and I think they do. And how much uh, work goes into organising these events? Uh, quite a lot of work. Um, our main workers behind the scenes that go out and get the sponsorship are uh, Kay and Rudy Taylor. Uh, they're with Rudy's with Marple. And um, they go out and get all the sponsorship. Um, myself and my partner, Ava Stewart, we organise the uh, touch every year. Yeah. And it's always a big uptake for the tournaments? Oh yeah, we, we always get six or seven teams a year. There's some we have to turn away because basically if we get any more than six or seven, you're looking at a two-day tournament. I mean, yeah. just for the six and seven, we won't be finishing till around four to five o'clock. Yeah. You could imagine if we had doubled that amount, we would be here till tomorrow. So uh, who's your pick for the uh, tournament winner? Um, I don't like to really go there because being the organiser, you know, I know... Some of these guys are going to be listening to him. They go, "Ooh, you eh? You've been picking him, picking him." I'll so right, turn the, the recorder off. <laughs> at the end of the day, I think sports and, and the Waitangi Day commemorations are the winner. How important are the volunteers? Uh, the volunteers are real important. If we didn't have them, we wouldn't be able to work. We wouldn't be able, this wouldn't be happening now. Um, like every year, we get like this year, for instance, we've got ten different rides in here. Now, what happens is the people that own the rides come by themselves, so they're needing help. So what we have to do is get volunteers to help each person on each ride, uh, i.e. giving them a break so they can go and have a lunch or whatever. And, uh, yeah, to me it's real important to them because without them, we wouldn't be able to operate. Like nobody, we don't get paid for doing this, none of us. It's all done from our, our, our hearts, basically. And, um, yeah, we've got people out there, maybe each ride, like this one over here, for instance, you need three people running it. So you've got the owner plus two volunteers. Um, you've also got the bungee jump over there. You've got four of them. So you need four people there plus two watching the entrance. And what, yeah, what, what rides, just on that, what rides or what activities do you have with the kids this year? OK, we've got two lots of uh, car rides, the Jeep's over here, and we've got another car ride around the back there. We've got um, the rock wall, as you can see, up the top there. They're climbing up the top and coming back down. On the other side, we've got a bungee jump, same thing. And we've got all these bouncy castles. We've got horse rides. So, you know, all those, they basically come every year. And they're all free? They're all free. All through sponsorship, like I said, from uh, Marple, the Commemoration Committee, and TPK. And I'd just like to add to that those three, people, those three groups have been sponsoring this for 12 years and without them we wouldn't have these free rides. Everybody would have to pay and you know at five dollars a pop for a ride and you're bringing in maybe four to five kids 
basically we can't afford it. And that's what this is about. The only hassles we do have are the queues, you know. <laughs> but, but I mean, the kids will stand there for hours, but it means they're going to get a free ride, eh? <clears throat> yeah. Um, and the number of stalls that you have up here, is, is, did, they basically, did they just follow you across the bridge up to this part? Well, yeah, yeah, they did, because when we first started 12 years ago, it was just a touch and the rides up here and maybe a, a couple of stalls. But now, 12 years down the track, they basically, there's that many stalls, they're sort of pushing us to one side and squeezing us in, but um, we get along okay after I sort of suss it all out and sort it out. Because they've also got the uh, main, sta- main stage over there. Um, That's just the first time this year. They didn't have one there last year, so, I mean, you know, every year something new's happening, and we're getting sort of bigger than bigger. Well, I noticed that. I mean, like you said, over a decade ago, it was mm. just on one side of the bridge. Exactly. Over a decade later, it just it's spread out. Yeah, so we're just getting bigger and bigger. Like I said, we may have to turn the, uh, the Waitangi Day into a two-day thing, I think. Two days public holiday, you reckon? Oh, it could do me. I'll need a public holiday after I leave here, I tell you, after today. But uh, preparing for next year starts for you, well, tomorrow. Basically tomorrow, yeah. Basically tomorrow, yeah. We've got to get it all ready again for next season. And like I said, it's a long haul. Enjoyable, but, though? Well, I wouldn't be doing it if I didn't enjoy it, you know. So, yeah, I love it. And the look on the kids' face? Oh, look at it. Look at them. They're all smiling over there on the road. Look at that line over there. You know? How many of those kids would never get on there if they had to pay. And that's what it's about, eh? It's, uh, let's commemorate, we're going to commemorate Waitangi Day. Let's do it in style with our children and give our children. That's what it's about, our youth. Let's give them that day too. Every two years, the International Festival of Arts hits the capital city. It brings together a variety of performances from the art world, from both here and abroad. And as nations meet, what better outlet than for the indigenous peoples of Aotearoa to present themselves, both on and off stage. Together with his wife, Emere, Farihuka Wano, through their event management company, Tihi Limited, have returned to their roles as a Māori liaison for the New Zealand International Arts Festival. It's the third time they have done this, and while the role is multi-tiered, what's clear is the commitment to showcase a toy Māori to the world, stretching across all genre. So listen on, you may find something appealing for you. Your role in the International Festival of Arts? Uh, the International Arts Festival has been traditionally about the, the real formal art forms, the operas and the and the symph- symphony orchestras and all those sorts of things that our people haven't tended to support. Um, so it's probably appropriate we talk about a, a, an opera as a start that's, that's, um, that, that's been performed as a, as, a, as a first time in this festival, Trial of the Cannibal Dog, which is... Based on Anne Salmon's book about um, uh, the arrival of Captain Cook mm. and his and his mm. eventual demise in, in the Pacific, where he where he was killed over there in the Hawaiian Islands, very strong Māori characters in there though, and so we you know we're really pleased to be um, bringing home uh, Philip Rhodes, who's uh, from the from um, Hawke's Bay area, uh-huh. Kahununu. He's been over in Wales. We've just flown him back from Wales, where he's where he's studying at a at a music. Um, university over there in Cardiff, and so um, you know we're bringing that sort of talent back. You know, Kirita Kanawa, and obviously those sort of, those sorts of people in here to we had in the past that have been strong opera singers, 
and we've got you know we've got a young crew um Deborah Waikapohe who's another one of our, our young Māori women um Mere Boynton of course who's well known in the local scene and um uh, Taina Moitara and Rangiria Headley who will be driving the sort of Taonga Puhoro side of this opera so it's a little bit um it's not your traditional opera you're going to get to see but it's really really interesting little piece and and the crew have been really working hard so that's that's showing on the um, in the in the opera house on the second and the fourth and the fifth of March. Uh, so I think it's you know, be well worth getting to see. Um, one of the one of the, the the opportunities that the festival has presented for Emery and I, my wife, and, and our company Tahi Limited, is that they've allowed us to produce shows. Um, in '04, we did a celebration of of Kapahaka, and we had also um, our contemporary artists like Fiddy Muckle Black and um, Hinawehi Mohi. Um, last festival in 06 we did a big celebration of the show bands era oh, Māori show bands yeah. era which was two, two night season at the town hall and, and quite a successful couple of nights this time we're getting to um, produce a, a show called Tamatū Tamaura mm. yeah. that looks good yeah yeah. No, we're, we're really pleased it's really celebrating that, that period where we um, you know, we, we started to challenge um, the mainstream sort of thinking around Māori kaupapa and of course you had Tamatoa um, uh, really pushing the 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 envelope there there in the late sixties, um, early seventies. They were they Nā Tamatoa were the group of um, you know seen as activists, radicals at the time. Um, you had your your, your Tamatis in his younger days and um, <laughs> Sir Jackson, uh, Sir Jackson, You know those those people that that really you know what the result of their work today is that we have Kohanga Reo, we Aye. have Kura Kaupapa, we have Māori radio stations, we have Fare Wānanga, we have Māori TV. So this the idea of this show was to celebrate um the the music of that time because like traditionally our, our musicians and our artists they told the stories of the time and and the protest songs of the time you know you've got Aotearoa's Maranga Akeai Yes you know um, unfortunately we've got to get Mr Judge um uh, Joe Williams, Joe Williams, to come back and, and, and be a part of the show. He's such a busy man, uh, but you know, um, French letter by um, by the Herbs that was you know you know we, we were really supportive of that whole um, cope opera of, of getting the French away from testing and, oh, and, the, the, and, and, what, and the and the Pacific um, uh, in, in, our, in our seas. Can you see um, and then you've got um, across the world uh, bands like Southside of Bombay, and, and so we've brought together a sort of collaboration of, of musicians: Mina Ripia, uh, Tony Huata, Rani Aperahama, Rani Andrea fame, uh, Kimo Winiata, you know, Iwi, Iwi um, sort of hip hop sounds Aye. of the nineteen nineties that you know iwi. exactly mm. told us we were we were we were Iwi, not Kiwi. <laughs> Um, My so, Fanonga, Conrad Noema. Oh yes, well, well, Conrad, you know, he's, he's been a music musician around the scene for for a while, as as have all of those guys, and of course, um, Kevin Hutu's actually uh, the musical director of this piece, and he had he had a big involvement in Southside of Bombay in the time. So we, you know, we're really pleased about the show. It's getting a two night season um, on the twenty eighth and 29th of of February at the Frank Kitts Park, which is the festival tent, and it's where all the action's going to happen. 
Well, you know, the festival tent is really our base, and it's where all the the artists that have performed in the operas and the and um, and all the shows throughout the festival they come back to this festival tent. So you, it's an opportunity for the punter uh, to go in and mix with the oh, uh, with, nice. the, with the artists. Said, yeah, it's been nice to have a few late nights. <laughs> Um, you know, we've got other uh, other collaborations. Green Fire Islands, an yeah, interesting that looks piece. A Celtic, yeah, Maori collaboration. Yeah, Irish. You know, we've we've had um, we've had a long history with with the Irish, um, and you know, there's been a lot of liaisons between um, the Irish and the Maori in terms of you know marriages and um, oh. and but also the music. You know, there's been a real sort of connection in terms of music, and we have a passion, and we love our food, and all those sorts of things. And maybe a similar colonial experience. Well, about. well, the you know we, we've we've got a common um, economy enemy in terms of the crown and and and, um, and what happened in Ireland with uh, with the you know the uh, the English and in, 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 in those times. So we've got that common sort of thing going on as well. Um, but you know, it's again we're, we're pleased to bring together Fiddy Muckle Black. She she tends to feature. Um, we're pleased to have her back, uh, Ricky Ricky Gooch, who you know is of um, Trinity Roots fame. Trinity Roots fame, aye. Um, Horo Mana Horo, who who again is involved with um, Taonga Puhoro. He certainly, in terms of the um, the Taonga Puhoro Fano and um, Rangi Iria Headley is a part of that. Are really sort of it, it's good to see you know with with us losing um here in New Melbourne a couple of years ago, and um, that they're picking up that. Yeah, sort it's of, heartening, isn't it, to see the, right. another generation of Dongapuor or practitioners coming forth. Totally, and and of course, um, you know, Richard Nance has been around mm. the scene. He's um, he's he's considered a bit of a co-martyr in, in terms of those um, that art form. Um, well, and there's got, some pretty impressive uh, media here. Uh, a stellar performance that will lift the roof of the Michael Fowler Centre. Eki. <laughs> well, great. You know, more, you know. I mean, the, the venue for you know to to get a, a, an event like this in the Michael Fowler Centre. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's going to be a great experience for oh, a, those a lot acoustics, of the acoustics. The acoustics, and you know, it's. I mean, you, you've, we've had the best of the best playing through that venue, uh, uh, international and national and and local. But to actually get, you know, I know the Fiddy Muckles and the and the rookies are looking for the looking forward <laughs> to the opportunity. I mean, they don't they don't get to perform in the everyday, so that's on the it's only a one night season, Tuesday the eleventh of March. So um, you know, I think it's going to be a great event. Um, eight eight pm, and the tickets are ranging from thirty five dollars to seventy dollars. So you know, um, you know, I mean, it's. It's about supporting those artists and those art forms, and I know at times our people cringe at to look at the price of tickets, but you know the fact is it's it's but great. We're in civil servant country. Yes, well, ching ching chikura chikura te tuhene. Yeah, it's like a tonukwe. You know, it, I mean, it, you're going to get a quality night, and and these and, and now, um, you know, we need to reciprocate with our with our musicians to ensure that they, you know, they they've been appreciated and valued. Because sometimes these things live on after the festival, neither. Yeah, look, Green, Green, Green Fire Islands are looking to to possibly tour nationally, and they're certainly going up to um, Womad um, the following weekend. And 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 um, you know they're all looking for that opportunity to take works overseas, um, international exposure. As you know, our, our artists and our art forms are, have got a bit of a, a, a sort of feel good thing happening internationally. Um, and, and, and at times more appreciated internationally than they are locally, uh, but Green Fire Islands are certainly hoping to sort of take some of our our, 
uh, musicians um, overseas to show you know strut this stuff. So International Arts Festival, um, we get a lot of international directors coming from festivals all over the world to check out what's what New Zealand's got to offer. So this this is why it's it's important that we do have a strong Māori content within mm. this festival. Farihokawano. The festival kicked off a few days with the dawn ceremony. And one of the events, Tamatū Tama Ora, has a two-night performance next Thursday and Friday. That's the 28th and 29th of February. And I'll be there singing up a storm and ready to nab some of you at the iwi for some feedback. Farihoka will be back next week talking about some of the other events, namely theatre, where Mariah asks whether Māori actually attend theatre. And on the web, he details some of the other arts festival highlights. Here he is again, Farihoka Wano, with this week's explanation of the Whakatauki. Katika Kimuri, Katika Kimua. E kore no nga mātua tūpuna. Mena Katika nga mahi Kimuri. Kite ki nga ringa wera marai. So it's just really um, borrowed straight off the marae and, and, it, and it, it's relevant to everything we do. It, uh, it's not just about our rangatira, that's then, um, that's sit on our, pai, our paipai, our taumata, or our kuia doing our karanga. It's also about who's um, doing the, the manaki role in the back in terms of what's happening in the ringa, with our rangawira, with our, our cooks. And, and so, you know, the, the, the whakataki saying, if things are well at the back, I'll be fine at the front. It's Pākai Tore Day, this Thursday, the 28th of February, in Whanganui. In 1995, Whanganui Māori moved on to Pākai Tore in an occupation, drawing attention to its illegal acquirement by the New Zealand Company in 1840 and illegal inclusion in a sale that was never agreed to by local iwi. As well as screening nightly on our television screens, it was a time when the nation was introduced to who we now know as the co-leader of the Māori Party, Tariana Tūria. E te iwi, go check it out. He mihi mahana ki nga kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Ki te whānau, kei konei, ngā kai rā wiki wiki mihini, ngā tangata kei roto i te whare pukapuka mi te kai waiata, ngā mihi. Hoi anō, he mihi aroha nui ki te whānau a Barry Barclay, ki ākui e hoa, Hoki atu ki te poho a papatu anuku. Ko tāne rautu te tēnei. Ko maraia rakuraku tēnei. He mihi atu ki a tātou katoa. He atera wiki e te iwi, mauri ora.